the Triathlon Show 271. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Coley Moore. Coley is a cycling coach to athletes of all levels and disciplines. He has consulted for world tour teams and world champion cyclists and is a national championship medalist himself. And in this interview, we discuss Coley's approach to coaching and go into detail on topics like testing protocols and how to use different overarching types of workouts. Things like think about what the when and the how of endurance workouts, threshold workouts, high intensity interval training, and so on. How to use all of that in your training and uh, many other bits and pieces, different topics related to cycling training and endurance training in general. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. Precision Hydration create electrolyte products that you can match to your individual sweat sodium concentration. Their products are available in a few different formats so that you can choose whatever suits you the best. They have the single serve packages, the sachets, which also contain some carbohydrates, so you get some energy from them then they have the non-caloric effervescent tablets that you get in tubes and they also have blister packs which are perfect for racing for bringing with you you can just keep it in your pocket even in a tri suit with small pockets and uh, that's a perfect way to get in uh, the required sodium and electrolytes even in in events like uh, on the run of travel events you can get 15% off your uh, precision hydration order with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW15 and be sure to take their free hydration plan because that will give you a good validated estimate for how much sodium you lose in your sweat and then you can select the strength of your electrolyte product based on that sweat test. Big thank you also to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka's wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, sunglasses and other top-of-the-line products are trusted by athletes like Javier Gomez, Lucy Charles Barclay, Flora Duffy, Mario Mola, Katie Zafiris and many, many others. Uh, they, there is exceptional R&D and attention to detail put into every of their products to make you as fast as possible. Or if we're talking about uh, more casual day-to-day products like the prescription glasses to make the product experience as great and comfortable as possible. You can get 20% off your entire Roka order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Coach Colin Moore. I'm here with Coach Colin Moore from Empirical Cycling. Welcome to the Triathlon Show, Colin. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Good, thank you. Uh, can you start by just introducing yourself a bit more to the audience? Some will already know you, I'm sure, from your podcast and articles, but for those that don't, who are you? Uh, I am Coley Moore. I am a cycling coach, and uh, I coach uh, all disciplines except BMX. I have a bit of a specialty with strength training and uh, track sprinting as well. And um, I have done a lot of uh, physiologic modeling with uh, WKO5. I was on the team that developed Training Impact Score, and I recently developed a VLA Max model. And previously, I had worked with uh, somebody to program it in, uh, brought the force velocity curve into WKO5. So if you're using any of those tools, uh, I am partly responsible for that kind of stuff. 
Cool. And, um, and I, I also, uh, oh, sorry, never mind. Uh, no, I was just <laughs> going to say, and maybe that's where you were getting to, but I also wanted to mention that you, uh, you have a podcast as well. Oh, thank you. I, I always forget to plug myself. Yes, I uh, have the podcast, uh, Empirical Cycling Podcast, because uh, why waste time on a name, I guess. And um, yeah, we break down the physiology and the whys of a lot of training stuff. And um, right now we're actually just starting on a series on metabolism. So uh, the first episode on that is why uh, fat oxidation is anaerobic. Right. Yeah. And I think that uh, quite a few listeners of this podcast probably also already listen to yours. But for those that don't, especially if they're interested in the the physiology and, uh, and the background and, and really want to get into the details of how our bodies work in, and uh, how exercise physiology works then that's a great a great podcast to listen to let's jump into your coaching uh, approach and or training philosophy whatever you want to call it can you give an overview of that and then maybe we can uh, dig into some details yeah sure um my overall philosophy is really just incredibly pragmatic um I approach training from two ways I approach it top down and I approach it bottom up so the top down approach is if I give this athlete a training intervention, does it work? And that really means just being able to track the variable that we're looking at uh, training and improving. Um, the other way to approach it is the bottom up, which is the cellular physiology biochemistry uh, kind of thing where I really take a deep dive into the whys and hows of uh, cellular physiology. And I have um, a lot of training in uh, biology and biochemistry that allows me to uh, to interpret this literature uh, fairly well, and really, it uh, it's a combination of the two that really informs my training approach the most, um, which is really trying to get the most adaptation for the least amount of work. And could you give one example of each to to exemplify? So, if you start with the top down approach, what's an example of where you're tracking whether a specific intervention works? Sure. Yeah. Um, a top-down approach would be like, if I give this athlete a lot of volume and then I give them an FTP block, um, what happens? Does their FTP go up or does the TTE go out? What happens there? Um, or if I give them a lot of volume, then I give them a VO2 max block, what happens? Or if I give them a lot of volume, then I give a mixed VO2 max FTP block, what happens? Or if they go straight into racing, what happens? Um, uh, yep. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's that's fair enough. And uh, just for those listeners that did not catch the acronym TTE, that's time to exhaustion, and that refers here to at your FTP. And for those users that may be using WKO or coaches listening, uh, TTE is something that is also in the WKO model. So, so I, I know, and uh, but we can tell the listeners that I mean you're using WKO for for a lot of the tracking. I, I assume. Uh, yeah, I do a combination of that. And I also just communicate with my athletes a lot, especially uh, emails and training piece comments and texts and calls and whatnot. Because um, uh, there's really no single variable that's going to tell me exactly how somebody's doing. So uh, I really like to take a lot of things and weight certain things a little differently and uh, triangulate on how somebody's legs are doing and how they're responding to a training intervention, and especially when it's time to rest. Perfect. And then an example for the bottom-up approach. Yeah, sure. Um, a bottom-up approach would be like uh, looking at mechanisms for aerobic adaptation. So something like calcium signaling in the muscles, um, which would, uh, you know, if you think about calcium signaling, presence of calcium, which only happens during contraction, 
Um, this means if you're doing an endurance ride and you want to increase the stimulus, you want to just spend a little more time pedaling. It doesn't necessarily mean that you want more watts, just means you want to spend a little more time on the bike. So that would be like a bottom-up approach. Mm, yeah, and even I mean things like course selection could come into into that as well. Uh, knowing that back, background, you could uh, you could inform the athletes or or advise them to select courses accordingly, where they don't have to spend a lot of time coasting. That is a hundred percent correct, and some of them don't like that, but uh, we work together on that, and we <laughs> we reach a compromise. Right. Well, let's like like next. Let's go into testing testing methods and protocols. Uh, what testing methods and protocols do you like to use with your athletes? Uh, pretty much the same ones that I think most people use, um, you know, five second, 30 seconds to one minute, uh, like three to five minutes and, you know, anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour, um, test, uh, depending on really what we're looking for, uh, and when in the season it is. And if I think somebody's fatigued or if they're in a bit of an FTP rut, um, like if anybody's read my article on, uh, the physiology of FTP and new testing protocols on training peaks, um, I advise an FTP test by feel, but if I know that somebody's been training at that FTP for a long time, like maybe two, uh, three week blocks, something like that. So the last two months or so, uh, a lot of the time people wear a run to their FTP. So uh, sometimes I'll give them uh, either an interval set or just a time trial to see if uh, we can break them out of that rut and if their FTP has gone up. All right. And can we uh, discuss that protocol a little bit more? Because I, I do think that uh, a lot of athletes has read that article. I find it very interesting. And uh, and also, I think that well, we'll be able to link to it in the show notes, of course, so, so more people can go and have a look at it. Uh, but what is that specific protocol for FTP testing that you described in that article? Yeah, well, in the article, I uh, I made uh, I believe three or four progressions on the uh, on a baseline test. The baseline test is pretty much a thirty to fifty something like that minute ramp uh, from below somebody's FTP to above somebody's FTP, and it averages out to about FTP. It's it's close enough. There's really no exact to the watt breakpoint for FTP. So it's uh, if we get it close enough, that's that's good. Um, and then. The progression is actually to teach people to feel their FTP, um, which is, uh, I, I think it was a long time ago. Um, Adam Myerson told me that he actually f- coined this phrase. So, uh, so if he did, uh, credit to him saying that your power meter is there to calibrate your brain. And especially with FTP, this is really true where you can actually feel your FTP. So it's that point where if you ride a little bit harder, that you're going to fatigue a lot faster and you can feel this, even if it takes, two or three or four minutes to feel that you're at that point, then you can bring it down a little bit. And, um, and I've done testing with my athletes too, who have ridiculously long TTEs, like in the 70, 80 minute range. So I'll say, all right, that if this is your FTP, I'm going to test you at, uh, 5% higher than this, uh, and then see how long you can hold that. And, uh, so if somebody has got an 80 minute TTE, and I give them five, uh, 5% higher and they can only hold it for 17 minutes, then yeah, that is in fact their FTP. So um yeah so it's really yeah, the, about the, the, the one just to clarify the the power they can hold for 80 minutes not 17 minutes in that example uh yes yeah so um so yeah so it's it's really about um a combination of you know the uh working with the athlete's perception and their self-pacing ability which i think uh is really really becoming more crucial especially as more people rely on erg mode for their workouts um being able to feel how your legs are doing no matter what the workout is or what um 
length of test or event or whatever it is that you have, I think that's becoming more and more crucial as a as a skill. Yeah, I could couldn't agree more. And and I think that that protocol really what is uh, enticing about it is that it really uh, t- like puts an end to the whole, whole problem of overestimating FTP that we we see quite a lot of athletes doing. Uh, I'm sure you also see that with athletes that before they start working with you, for example, that have, have overestimated FTPs. And with your longer protocol, and especially because of the slight ramping nature of it, you can kind of get around that issue and, and actually get something that is is an accurate FTP, something that is proven that they can sustain for a fairly long time. Yeah, exactly. And I, I would say probably 30 to 50% of the time, it's the same as somebody had estimated otherwise, and that's great. Uh, but the rest of the time, uh, it's usually lower than somebody thinks their FTP is, and that is an ego blow. But at the same time, um, that's when we actually start making the real progress. Because if you spend too long training over your FTP, you are... Um, and a lot of people might think that you can train over your FTP with an overestimated FTP. That if I just get through these intervals consistently, um, I'm, my FTP will eventually actually catch up to where I'm training it. And the, actually, the opposite happens where you accumulate way too much fatigue. And, uh, and really, your performance just starts going down and down and down to the point where you can't even do intervals at your actual FTP. Um, so that's something that uh, I've managed to successfully avoid with my athletes and i wish and hope that more self-coached athletes can do as well yeah yeah great points and then so you mentioned the the time ranges that you like to test and obviously all of that will build the power duration curve for you uh, are there any other other than this at uh, the ftp testing and building out the power duration curve are there any other specific tests that you do or specific reasons for doing a particular duration of the ones you mentioned oh yeah of course um it really depends on what the athlete's goals are. So if somebody is going to be doing like a randonneuring event, um, you know, on their mountain bike, then that's something that we're going to do is we're going to make sure that they can go out and do 50, 60, you know, increasing durations uh, with full pack and, you know, work on their nutrition and stuff like that. So we'll do test days like that that are not necessarily power performance tests. Uh, you know, a lot of it's, you know, stuff like that is logistics and decision-making on the bike. Like, should I, uh, you know, should I eat now? Like how much should I eat? Or should I, you know, take a minute to, you know, change the batteries in my light, stuff like that. Um, or if somebody's like uh, going to be doing a pursuit, then yeah, we're definitely going to be testing their, you know, 3k, 4k pursuit or whatever their distance is. Um, so, uh, so if somebody's doing a kilo or, or uh, you know, is a match sprinter, then yeah, we're going to test their uh, accelerations and their, you know, flying 200s. So it really, um, or if somebody's like a mountain bike racer or a cyclocross racer, I want them to have a normal course that's, you know, stochastic enough and somewhat technical. They can put down some power, but as their times get better on that kind of stuff, uh, that's actually another uh, good indicator of increasing fitness. Mm. Makes sense. And next, uh, I want to go into some different types of workouts and uh, discuss the why and how of each of them. So if we start with endurance rides, can you give some uh, some of your guidelines for why should we do them in the first place, but also how do you advise your athletes to do them and why? Yeah, sure. Uh, The why is pretty simple because you can only recover realistically from so many intervals. Um, and then, uh, I know a lot of people like to hammer sweet spot all the time, but, um, you know, managing that fatigue and going lower is, uh, is always a good idea. Um, 
because especially in terms of uh, hormonal adaptations and uh, and metabolic adaptations and fat mobilization adaptations, uh, there's really not a lot that can beat a good amount of endurance riding. And this is why professional athletes do so much easy spinning. It's because you know they can't recover from more interval work, and you know <laughs> the. At that level, you know, how much are you going to improve versus how much fatigue are you going to acquire? Uh, and so that's, um, you know, something where we have to do that equation for everybody at whatever level they're at. Um, the, the, um, the how is more like, um, I usually tell people to do it by RPE. I don't like power or heart rate targets because heart rate can decouple based on fatigue and, um, and sleep and stress and, you know, all those the laundry list of things that we've all heard a thousand times. Um, and I also don't like to do it by power because, uh, cause the optimal power for an endurance ride, I think can change through an endurance ride. So I, I always tell people to do it like an FTP test. Like you start easy, let the effort come to you. Don't go looking for the effort. Cause especially if you start with a certain power output and you think that you can hold this for five, six hours or whatever, uh, a lot of the time early on, you have not actually mobilized enough fatty acids to burn. And so you are actually dipping into your glycogen stores a lot more than you think you are. And that can actually spoil you later in the ride. So uh, RP is the way I think that that should all be done. And you should always be looking to ride at a level where you can sustain the riding, but you know you're not actually gathering up that much fatigue. I don't think anybody should be really struggling to finish a three, four, five, six hour endurance ride. Mm. And do you have different levels of how well how how taxing they should be? Because uh, even though you pace it well, a five hour ride will always have a certain amount of uh, of of training stress to it. So so it won't necessarily be easy. It's not it's not a spin for most people. Whereas you could also have somebody do a forty five minute easy spin. How much of those short endurance or like not not e- endurance rides necessarily, but easy rides, easy spins, do you include in your program, or do you mostly when you do endurance, you do longer durations, or does that really depend on the athlete a lot? Oh, it depends on the acute fatigue management that we're looking for. I assign those rides, the shorter endurance rides and easy rides, all the time. Um, you know, definitely more than once a week for most people. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it, it really depends on what the focus of the block is and what the adaptations that we want in the long term are. Um, sometimes uh, it's better to you know pile on a little more and then rest a little harder, and other times it's better to kind of you know feather the throttle a little bit and not push so hard. So um, it's really situationally dependent. Do you ever include anything in the endurance ride? Anything things like cadence work or? Um, I don't know, even things like uh, nutritional interventions and anything other than just go out and ride at a at an RPE that feels like a, a comfortable endurance. Oh yeah, a lot of the time um, we'll uh, we'll incorporate cadence work. We'll incorporate some some sprints or something like that. Uh, especially early in the ride when you're fresh, that's a good time to do that kind of stuff. Uh, depending on the athlete, sometimes we'll do them through the ride. Um, but you know, again, this is one of those. Um, you know, matching the uh, abilities of the athlete to the demands of the event kind of thing um, when you make those decisions. Uh, yeah, we do some nutritional interventions as well. Uh, I don't think I've ever assigned somebody like a fasted ride, but um, for some athletes, we will do low carbohydrate rides, um, particularly if they're uh, coming up on the limits of their uh, volume and we need to get them a little more stress. 
because uh, low glycogen in itself can be a potent uh, aerobic signal, but uh, it can definitely be overdone. So, um, so starting gently with that kind of stuff and building into it. And some people are better than others. And, uh, for some people, we just don't get the adaptation that we're looking for. So, uh, you know, again, that kind of stuff is like, there's a lot of tools in the toolbox and, um, and using them is like, uh, you know, you, you can use, uh, you can use a, the back of a screwdriver to hammer in a nail if you really want to, but, <laughs> but sometimes there's a better tool for the job. Um, and so that's, that's really what we're always looking for. Yeah. And one final question on endurance rides. This is actually one that I get quite a lot from listeners uh, for answering on the Q&A, but I actually never answered it because I don't know the exact answer. And maybe you have uh, some some thoughts on this. And that is, what is the impact of, let's say, a surge during an endurance ride? Let's say you're doing a a group ride and it's all fairly easy but then every now and then somebody will put in a surge or whatever maybe when you get to the hills just power goes up for a couple of minutes or or a few or more than a couple of minutes but either way how does that impact the adaptations you're looking for if you for whatever reason include surges surges that are that go quite a bit above what you are actually meant to be doing in terms of intensity you know that's uh that's an interesting question because um I have a non-answer for it. Uh, so, um, so maybe your listeners will be happy or angry at my answer for this. Um, uh, a lot of the time, depending on what I think that the athlete should be doing, that's either going to be fine or it is not going to be fine. Um, so I think if somebody's tired, especially this is a time to not do that kind of thing. Um, when somebody you know, especially at the end of a couple of days of hard training in a row, I usually like to assign a long endurance ride. And that's the time not to do that kind of thing. Um, because you can still do that endurance ride and eat a lot during that endurance ride. And you can actually get in some good recovery and good aerobic signaling. However, with, uh, endurance rides, uh, a lot of the time I like to assign, um, you know, just fun rides, just go out and have fun. And if you do that kind of thing while you're on a fun ride, that's fine. It doesn't have to be easy. Just, some days just, you know, go wherever your legs or your friends take you and that's all right. Um, that kind of stuff can be really motivational to people. Um, and also on long rides, uh, I love to assign threshold intervals throughout the ride. So doing 10 or 20 minutes of threshold every hour for f- three to six hours um, or a sweet spot or, you know, some fart like tempo intervals or something like that, that can actually be a really, really good, um, really good training ride. And so, something like that can be somewhere in that uh, spectrum of training rides. And so if it's good or not really depends on if it fits in with the training adaptations that you want and the fatigue and the motivation of that uh, particular time. Right. Yeah. Perfect. And then let's move on to uh, the so-called mid zone rides. So things like you mentioned threshold, sweet spot, uh, tempo, uh, those kinds of workouts. When, uh, why, and how would you use those? And uh, and yeah, you can you you can describe this however you want. If there's one particular type of dose that you prefer the most, or any particular intensity within the mid zone that that you prefer or another. Yeah, I mean, this is another one of those things where uh, this kind of thing especially if you're like a road racer or something like that. Um, or if you're looking to increase that metabolic threshold that you can sustain, um, this is a really, really good, uh, training zone. Um, and even for people like crit racers or triathletes, like especially Ironman triathletes, it may seem like it's not specific enough, 
but um, but physiologically, it's really the upper limit of uh, what you can do uh, fully aerobically, despite the carbohydrate contribution. Um, you know, <laughs> even if you're getting two ATP from glycolysis, you're still getting thirty some odd net ATP uh, through the aerobic uh, chain. So, um, so it is really the aerobic ceiling, like uh, like a lot of folks have called it, like uh, Andy Coggin calls it, something like that. Uh, and I agree with him on that. So. Um, so this is a really good training zone to do. Uh, it's also really good for um, for fat adaptation, actually. Uh, as as you and this is usually what I target with FTP type work, like the mid zone type work, like anywhere from like you know uh, I usually don't assign straight tempo rides, but I'll do fart like tempo rides, uh, especially for road racers. But I think for triathletes, like a straight tempo ride is. Uh, would be a good uh, training ride. Um, this and like sweet spot, sweet spot with bursts or over unders, uh, FTP with bursts or straight FTP, uh, all this kind of stuff I assign. And the goal of it is to extend the time that you can do this kind of work. So, um, and this is uh, basically going to really get into your uh, fatigue resistance and your fat mobilization because the catecholamines are higher in your blood and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, looking at your TTE extending and, um, and for, for a lot of people, uh, especially if you're kind of new to this, uh, type training, um, you're going to expect your FTP to go up, but at some point, um, I would not expect somebody's FTP to go up. I would expect the TTE to go out. So it depends on where you're at and what you're looking for. But, um, I always do it extensively rather than trying to, you know, add more Watts of like you do it at, you know, three by 15 at 200 watts then you do it at 205 watts then you do it at 210 watts i'd rather go out i'd rather go three by 15 two by 20 four by 15 three by 20 etc etc yeah and i have several follow-up questions here first uh tempo fart leg uh, what exactly uh, is that oh that's um that's like uh i call it like a breakaway ride uh so if you're on uh rolling terrain uh, far like tempo is you go harder as the terrain gets harder. Right. Uh, it's basically your classic time trial pacing uh, type ride. And this is another one of those self pacing rides that I like to give people where it's like, I tell them you've got, you know, a 30 to a 60 kilometer uh, breakaway, you and three other people, and you need to get to the line. Um, how do you pace that? And this is a good type of interval for that kind of thing or for triathletes who are going to be on rolling courses, this is a really good uh, specific training uh, interval that you can do. Yeah, perfect. And then uh, you discussed how this is a good type of training for fat mobilization. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, yeah, sure. Actually, I think... Um, oh, I don't have the reference ready with me. Um, I think there was a paper from Coil and Sidosis and two other authors from the uh, somewhere between the 80s and 90s, I think, um, where they show as the um, exercise intensity increases, the uh, catecholamines and the subsequent um, uh, lipolysis uh, also increases. Um, and this is, uh, as far as I can tell anyway, um, the primary adaptation of uh, you know, TTE type training at FTP is the ability to use and mobilize more fatty acids. So, so how does that, um, how does that relate to a typical fat oxidation curve that we'll see and we'll have, like if somebody goes to a lab and tests their VT1 or their LT1, and uh, usually the fat max point would quite, will be somewhere in that ballpark at least, even though it can vary. But with this intensity that is a bit high, a bit, a bit higher than that LT1 or VT1. When you're talking about 
are we talking about fat oxidation here as well that you're saying that fat oxidation can increase with intensity or is it really mobilization getting the fat available but then the the uh the oxidation of it is still more on the carbohydrate side just because of the intensity yeah it really depends um because there's a, a co-regulatory mechanism between carbohydrate oxidation and fat oxidation um but you know evolutionarily speaking uh, our bodies leaning towards fat oxidation makes sense um and uh um uh, you know the mechanism of carbohydrate oxidation uh, inhibiting uh, fat transport into mitochondria is actually fairly well established, but the other way is actually not so well established, as far as I can tell. Uh, it might actually just be like you know ATP and acetyl uh, CoA type uh, regulation. Um, but um, oh, hold on, where was I going with that? <laughs> uh, oh, um, now I remember. Uh, so the other thing that actually, if we go into a lab and we measure this, uh, whole body. Uh, carbohydrate and fat oxidation is different than actual muscular fat oxidation. Uh, there have been a couple studies looking at um, looking at um, ephemeral uh, artery and vein um, type stuff and muscle biopsies where they actually show that the um, that the percentage of fat oxidized in the actual working muscles is much higher than you were going to measure from whole body um, uh, calorimetry. Um, but this is something where I've only seen a couple papers and I haven't delved that deep into it. So if I'm entirely wrong in this, I apologize. Uh, but uh, the consensus um, where I've talked to people who are in the know about this kind of stuff, uh, who have you know done this stuff a lot longer than I have in the labs, is that, yeah, like longer TTE at FTP is really a big sign of increasing fat oxidation. Right. Perfect. And then my final follow-up question on, on this is when you mentioned uh, this kind of mid-zone training as being uh, targeted towards what we might call an aerobic ceiling and uh, being highly aerobic type of training, but you also earlier discussed how the endurance rides are important because you can only do so many intervals. Would you say that within reason it makes sense to try to do quite a lot of the mid-zone training because it's aerobic but it's a higher aerobic power than, than the endurance rides but of course you can only do so much that you can consistently do but but if an athlete is able to do one more tempo or sweet spot ride at the expense of an endurance ride is that a worthwhile change or what are the factors that you need to consider when when potentially making such a change uh i would say my middle of the road recommendation for uh, middle zone type training would be about three times a week. Um, and uh, sometimes two, depending on the athlete and the volume. Uh, you know, it's just another one of those things that's very situationally dependent. Uh, and I think the primary factor that goes into that would be fatigue management. Um, so if I think somebody's going to be doing suboptimal, um, you know, uh, progression of the intervals throughout a training block because we're trying to add an extra interval uh, set excuse me during the week um i would probably say let's skip that extra interval set and let's add more interval time on your actual interval days and make those higher quality and let th let's let those be progressive as opposed to you know kind of fighting against the fatigue for an extra day a week all right yep and uh, then moving up the intensity uh, spectrum even more and uh, talking about intervals that are above FTP. So you might call them VO2 max intervals or high intensity interval training. Uh, because, I mean, you could also talk about sprint training, of course, but that is a bit different. So for the purposes of this 
into let's uh, let's discuss intervals that are for example intervals like six times three minutes is a classic one or uh, 6030s or 3015s where you do a bunch of them so typically you would talk about these being targeted to vo2 max improvements so so what's your opinion on on these this type of training uh i have a mixed opinion on this kind of stuff um I've certainly used all kinds of things successfully to uh, increase people's VO2 max. Um, however, due to the intensive nature of it, uh, you know, there can be a lot of anaerobic adaptations along with it, especially when we get into the intermittent repeated type stuff. Um, and what I've found is that the longer the recovery periods uh, during the intermittent stuff, the more uh anaerobic stimulus that somebody's going to get, which is why usually if I'm going to do that kind of stuff, I'll typically do like 45 15s as the VO2 max intermittent type protocol. Cause as we get into 30 second rests and minute rests, um, the anaerobic capacity has a little bit better ability to, um, to recover. And also you get to work on, uh, buffering those uh, metabolites a little better. Um, so, uh, so that kind of stuff I have mixed feelings on a lot of the studies. Um, I, I've been a little bit harsh on, on, on the Ronstadt study in my podcast. So I've, I'll apologize to Ronstadt again. I didn't mean to impugn his character, uh, or his decisions. Um, so if you're curious about that, it's, uh, it's in there. Um, but a lot of these studies I find have, uh, large methodological flaws that I'm not stoked on, uh, you know, really applying this kind of stuff, um, which is not to say that it can't work. Uh, it certainly can, depending on the phase and what the athlete likes to do. Um, it's uh, it's one of those things where uh, it's, it's, again, also very situationally dependent. Um, the more steady state intervals, I really like a lot better for VO2 max. Um, I have some recommendations in my podcast for stuff like that, like uh, decreasing the rest intervals or increasing the cadence uh, can help a lot. Um or I think it can help a lot experientially. It does. Um, and, and with the steady state intervals, we're talking here about intervals that are three, four, five minutes long or so. Even, even yeah, I usually assign like uh, five or six minutes down to like maybe two minutes as the shortest. Um, but uh, longer than that, uh, occasionally some athletes prefer longer intervals. So if uh, if we can get them doing what I looks to me like a good stimulus, then we'll do that. But uh, for the most part, it's yeah, two to six minutes or something like that for steady state. Um, and I, I personally like to assign those as max instead of like a targeted power. Um, but um, that's uh, that's just a personal philosophy of my own. And and are you looking for a certain duration at high intensity here? So so if you're giving the athlete five minute intervals, would, how how many of them would you give roughly? What would be the the guideline for selecting the number of intervals? Yeah, I would say 15 to 20 minutes worth of interval time if you're really going max. Um, and the reason I think that uh, this is actually an interesting uh, point with this is the balance of the intervals intensity. Uh, so if you don't go max, you have to do more work to get about the same uh, stimulus and adaptation. Uh, and to me, that is a lot more kilojoules spent that need to be recovered from. And I'd rather have somebody do less work more maximally um, and... Uh, and then, you know, have to recover from that. So that's why I think 15 to 20 minutes of interval time is about the right range. And when I let people, you know, go wild with the intervals um, and they're doing it maximally, very, very few people can get past like 22 minutes worth of interval time. I don't think I've ever seen anybody go past 24 minutes when I let them just 
you know, five to question mark times three, they'll, they'll usually do like seven or eight and then they'll go, yeah, that was plenty. I think I'm cooked. Yeah. And, and when you say max there, is that maximum that they can sustain for the number of intervals or really actually a max effort? And then you just repeat that and and the power might go down across the set of intervals. Yeah, that's actually a good question. Um, Because whenever I start assigning these intervals to a new athlete, uh, we do a long dialogue about this kind of stuff, unless they have already tried it and, uh, and kind of get it already. Um, the pacing is more like a, it's like a daily max, I would say like, like, uh, like a training max instead of like an Olympic max, um, where you want to make sure that you are actually breathing as hard as possible. Um, but you are not, you know, starting with a full sprint. You're not doing that. You're not really squeezing every last drop out of it. You're getting probably to like a nine to a 9.5 out of 10, um, in the absolute, full max spectrum but on the daily kind of like training max well yeah you can actually put down a 10 rpe for that kind of stuff right yeah that makes sense and that actually reminds me that i kind of skipped past how to do the the mid zone rides a little bit in terms of pacing so would you usually prescribe some power targets there or is it uh what rpe based or or how does the uh, the prescription of workouts work in in the mid zone rides yeah, I'd say 90% of the time I'll assign a power target because we know physiologically where your FTP is. And unless um, something very unusual and wonderful is going on where you're adapting very quickly, uh, which can happen you know, when you get right off the couch, uh, FTP physiologically is not going to change that drastically that much, especially after you're fairly well trained. So we'll usually target like FTP and we'll target 90% of FTP as sweet spot training. And that means you can go longer with that kind of stuff. You can get a few more kilojoules in depending on how you want to characterize the adaptation. Then sometimes you can get a little more adaptation that way. Um, but I, I always assign a mix of all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, with that said, uh, the other 10% of the time where I don't assign a power target, uh, are usually for people who live around mountains and are doing a lot of climbing. So your FTP is, uh, going to drop, you know, effectively as you climb and the uh, oxygen pressure drops. And so that's the time that you would start with your uh, targeted number. And then you would kind of follow the same feeling in your legs, that same RPE as you climb and your power uh, effectively drops. Uh, so that's where I would um, also sometimes tell people to, you know, keep the elevation gain under uh, 300 meters for a uh, for a climb. So you're not actually losing that much power because sometimes, uh, again, depending on how you want to think about the adaptation, um, you know, more adaptation with uh, more oxygen would be better. So so it's uh, it's a bit of a mix. And with the, um, you know, getting to a good number of uh, reps with that kind of thing, uh, taking good rests can help. Um, you know, resting means you can do actually more work. So if your TTE is only effectively 45 minutes, you can get an hour of intervals in if you do like six by 10 minutes with five to 10 minute rests. Um, and really the effective range, I think, for that type of interval is if you start to get to about having to feel like you're working pretty hard for the last maybe five or 10 minutes, um, or you start to have to dig a little bit deep, but you're not really going that hard. I think that's a good range uh, of interval time. Then that's a good time to stop. Uh, again, that kind of thing where you don't ever want to hit a true 10 out of 10 because then the recovery time um, and the fatigue is more than um, you know 
the the balance point gets reached where it's more than the effective adaptation that you're going to get, and it's going to cost you in the next uh, couple of days or weeks even. That, that makes sense to me. But just to calibrate, what does that usually end up being in roughly speaking in terms of how much time at threshold or FTP and how much time if you're doing a sweet spot ride and versus tempo ride in, in oh, what sure. ballpark are we are we talking these runs ride sending up being well this is where i would say that knowing your tte helps a lot uh so um so for instance here's a really good example i um i was training an athlete a development athlete and uh we did a really good uh vo2 max block his ftp went up about uh probably the biggest jump i've i've ever seen after that it's probably about 30 35 watts and um, so we started having him doing TTE work at his new FTP, and uh, he was it was you know thirty five minutes right after the block, and so you know we started with three by ten, four by ten, and then we started to build from there. And at sweet spot, about ninety percent of that, I considered that like a new number. So if you can do that for forty, like for him, it was probably like an hour. So we started at an hour, then we brought it out to an hour and a half, um, and then uh, at the end of uh, eight weeks, I just had him ride at his new FTP for uh, as long as he could hold it. And he held it for, uh, I think it was 55 minutes. So we gained 20 minutes of TTE in about uh, eight weeks. Yeah. And that's something we maybe didn't mention when we discussed your FTP testing protocol, but it's not a fixed time. So it actually gives you another, not just the modeled TTE, but your actual TTE if you do that test until you you can't go any any harder at your at your FTP. So So that's a good additional reason for uh, your FTP test protocol. Yeah. And I would say that if you are familiar with the WKO5 model and its uh, benefits and drawbacks, uh, then uh, it's a really, really helpful tool to be able to track fitness, especially if you keep the model up uh, pretty well. Um, and, you know, just a visual inspection of the model, you can actually see fairly well if, excuse me, if the FTP is overestimated or the TTE is underestimated, and those are two typical things that usually happen in this iteration of the model. So, um, so sometimes not using the model and just going with your raw numbers are good. Uh, I know actually a couple of people who train by the model and um, when they don't have the model well fed and it's overestimating, it leads to some uh, suboptimal training over threshold. Yeah. Now let's uh, move on to the next topic, which is periodization or mapping out your training at a seasonal or macro level. So can you discuss how you go about that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I'm always thinking in terms of uh, rest and adaptation gain from rest. Uh, a lot of people, for instance, this off season um, have uh, gained, either maintained or gained uh, FTP. Um, usually most of the time it's, uh, you know, within about 10 Watts, sometimes it's gone up 10 or 15 Watts, which is always great to see. Um, so after a good rest, uh, I look at the rest of the season, where's this athlete's goals, um, and how much rest do they actually need to be able to train to do that? So I never skimp on the rest. Most of the time, I think, um, if, uh, most athletes are thinking that they need more training, I, I would usually say they need more resting. Um, so I don't skip on the rest. And then from that period, when I look at, if I think this person needs like eight weeks of, you know, kind of easy riding and maybe some lifting or something like that, or 10 weeks or 12 weeks, then we get them to that point, And then we look at the rest of the season and think, all right, so how hard do we have to train them and how fast can they get there? And where is their goal? Um, so it's really about maximizing their improvement in fitness to land on the right day. 
Um, and even that, that day-to-day management with that kind of thing is that's, I would say that's probably the hardest thing in coaching is getting somebody on their best legs on the right day. Um, but yeah, and then it's uh, really just taking their goal event and just working backwards, um, you know, going through their specific prep to their general prep and then where are they now? And then we kind of just fill in the rest. Mm. Can you give a quick example of how that, that might work? Let's say you have somebody preparing for a 40k TT. Uh, how long would the specific prep be? And, uh, and I mean, the specific prep for 40k TT is, is quite obvious. A lot of specific work at close to threshold or around threshold. But, uh, but then what about the period before that? How will, would you think about what to fill that time before the specific prep with? Uh, it depends on where I think the athlete can get the most adaptation. Um, like for instance, if I think that we can get their FTP up, even if it shortens the TTE and then work the FT, the TTE out for that day, um, then that's something that we'll do. Um, or if I think that they need a different type of prep, like some of, uh, some of my TTers actually do really well with like criterium type training before a, uh, before an FTP, um, or not, not a FTP before like a 40 K time trial. Um, and so it really depends on the athlete and what I know that they respond to. Mm. And, and about the specific preparation period, how long would that usually be? Oh, sure. Uh, usually probably four to eight weeks. Um, and we'll always sprinkle in some specific stuff throughout the year. Um, uh, probably I'd say once or twice a week, even if it's like just a recovery ride on their TT bike or something like that. But, you know, if they're, you know, if you have a TT bike, uh, a, lot, a lot of people don't, but, um, you know, if that's really your goal, then we're actually going to do a lot of training on your, on your TT bike. Uh, as long as you can actually hold that position for, <laughs> for certain periods of time, uh, which can be a struggle for some folks, depending on the aggressiveness of that position. So, um, so again, that's that's another one of those things where you've really got to manage those variables with the athlete specifically. Yeah. Uh, I, on a side note, I actually listened to an interview on the Endurance Innovation podcast with uh, Dan Bigham recently, who is preparing for the uh, the British Hour record, I believe. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he said that well, he's doing ninety eight percent of his training on the TT bike. He thinks it's that important when when preparing for an event like that to actually spend as much time as possible in the tt position and that was uh, probably the highest number i've ever heard anybody say that they're training on the on the tt bike but uh yeah definitely that's uh that's important but that was a bit of a side note what i wanted to just generally uh comment on here is that it sounds like in the earlier part of the season you're working on the athletes like seeing where there is room for improvement and uh, building the athlete up quite individually and then in the last four to eight weeks, that's where you do a lot of specific work and, and it maybe might look more similar for, for all athletes that are preparing for that same event. Is that correct? Uh, I would say that's more or less correct. Um, you know, uh, it's really hard to say um, because I, I compartmentalize every athlete so much that I really don't compare one to the other that much. So, um, so that kind of bird's eye view on, on my like TTers, for instance, um, I actually have not really thought about. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Uh, so then the next topic on my list here is how do you recommend athletes go about nutrition in training and in their day to day? Well, that's a very general question. Um, I would say for the most part, the most important things that you can do are the things that we all know that we should be doing. Um, so eating enough, 
eating a good variety of foods, uh, eating enough after you, right after you finish riding or before riding. Um, but you know, a lot of nutrition is uh, very specific to the athlete. So like if you get up at 5 a.m. to ride at 5.30, uh, your nutritional needs for before riding are going to be different than somebody who rides at 5.30 after work. Um, so there's a lot of um, individualization that, that comes with that kind of thing. Um, but also generally, I would say that more endurance athletes should probably be getting more protein. Um, cause if you, you know, just want to think about, you know, maintaining muscle mass or making adaptations, if you're making new capillaries or whatever the thing is, uh, a lot of that stuff needs protein. And, um, <laughs> and I think a lot of people, uh, kind of skip on that kind of stuff, but, uh, generally I would actually say if, um, I, I think most people who are questioning their nutrition strategies should probably consult a, a really good uh, nutritionist. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and and uh, and in workouts, what are your general guidelines there? I, I would say most of the time, eat as much as needed. Um, uh, food and sleep are ninety eight percent of recovery, I think, and it's probably even underselling it. It's probably more like ninety nine percent of recovery, uh, and making sure that you're eating enough on a ride, uh, especially if you've got a couple hard rides in a row, uh, can really help you. Um, you know from digging too deep into your muscle glycogen, which you can only recover at a certain rate. And, you know, so making sure that you're not digging too deep into that uh, and eating enough for the next day is uh, probably very high on the priority list. But, you know, it depends on the like the intensity. But if you're really just looking for a ballpark to start, I would say like 50 to 80 grams an hour of carbohydrates. And especially once you get past 50 to 60, you're going to want a variety of carbohydrates. You're going to want some fructose in there, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The, the usual stuff. Yeah. And then finally on that, this topic, you also mentioned that sometimes you might do some, uh, some low carb training. So can you describe that a bit more? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, especially if somebody's coming up on the uh, limit of what they can do with time, or if I think that we can get a little more adaptation out of them, um, we'll start to do some low carbohydrate training, but this is, uh, you know, for some people, it'll be uh, an experiment to see if it works or not. Uh, but for a lot of people, it'll be one of those things where uh, they feel like they have a lot better endurance while doing this kind of thing. Um, so I usually recommend maybe one day a week. On an extreme end, I would I would say two. And in very, very, very small cases, I would say more than two days a week, but almost never in a row. You always want to eat a lot right after you're done riding because uh, sitting around with local glycogen stores is pretty miserable. Um, and because it does take time to rebuild them, that you're going to want to get to that uh, as soon as possible because you want to make sure that you get the adaptation that you want and that you recover for your harder rides. And and how would you do that? Would you uh, is it an an endurance ride, a lower intensity ride that you do that in? Do you take on some carbohydrate food at ride, and have you? emptied the stores the night before can you describe a little bit more how how you go about that yeah sure there's a couple ways that we can go about it so you can either start uh in the morning this is probably where i would start most people is in the morning for breakfast uh avoid carbohydrates but start riding easy on the bike always low intensity i would almost never ever uh prescribe um somebody do any higher than endurance pace uh occasionally uh, occasionally we'll toss in some tempo, especially if somebody can only do like two hours or something like that. And we want to increase the stimulus. We'll do that. But generally when people can ride longer, we, we never do that. Um, 
And so when, um, yeah, so, so starting with low carb and then, um, then eating on the bike, I think is crucial. Uh, cause the last thing you want to do is bonk because then you cannot ride, uh, at any kind of intensity where you're going to really be getting functional adaptations. Um, and so this is another place where pacing by RPE is really crucial. Cause if you think that you can ride harder when you have low glycogen stores and not even just in your muscles, just systemically, uh, that's going to be a problem after an hour or two. So you always want to keep it easy and eat as needed, especially if you're kind of feeling weak or bonky, then you want to start stuffing your face with muffins for sure. Um, and then to, you know, to get a little more out of that, you, you might want to start the night before reducing, uh, restricting carbohydrate intake a little bit. Um, maybe starting with restricting 20% at dinner and then, um, bring that back a little bit. Um, but there's not a hard and fast rule where this ends. It's really, um, it's really what, uh, I think works for the athlete. And if we can, um, get more out of them, if they can ride, like if for instance, they can ride 25 to 30 hours a week and they're doing a lot of five hour rides every day, then there's no way that we're going to do this kind of thing because we're getting the adaptation that we need while they're eating plenty. So, uh, again, very situationally dependent. Yeah. Oh, but that's a good, uh, good description. Then you mentioned that you have a lot of experience with strength training. Uh, so what are your strength training recommendations for cyclists? Uh, I would say most cyclists could probably use uh, some strength training for bone density and for uh, tendon and ligament health. Um, but beyond that, uh, well, you can actually get a, a you know bone density from things like jump rope or light jogging and stuff like that. Just plyometric impacts doesn't have to be like depth drops or drop jumps or anything extreme. Um, uh, you know, doing it for health, I think, is one of the thing, big things that I think a lot of cyclists could benefit from with strength training, even if you're only incorporating it a little bit through the year. Um, a lot of my athletes also tend to find when they're doing some strength training, uh, even if it's light, you know, 50 to 60% of their max back squat, something like that through the year, once a week, you know, even if it's just couples light sets that they find that they are, you know, they're, they're, they don't get any of those like little pains and, and whatever's in their back or anything like that. So um, but beyond that, if you need to do a lot of strength training or not, or if you've anything like that, I don't have any strong recommendations for you. If you need it for your event or to do a specific adaptation, like if you want to get stronger for sprinting, do some strength training. If you don't need strength training to improve your sprint, don't do it or do it if you want. Uh, it's, <laughs> there's really no, no hard and fast rule with this stuff. All right. What's your take out of curiosity on, there is some research on the exercise uh, economy and improvements in the exercise economy based on strength training, in particular, uh, the kind of strength training with, with high weights and, and low reps uh, of, of lifting. So, I mean, I think that from my perspective, I think it's probably even more important in running. There are some additional adaptations that you get there that you might not get in cycling with increases in in tenderness stiffness and uh, and other things that that have an impact on the energy return but from a cycling perspective uh, what what's your take on that uh i've actually never looked into the relationship between strength training and cycling economy um so i actually don't have a strong opinion on this i know it's really good for running and on occasion when i do train runners. I like to do have them do some of that lifting, but uh, for the most part, um, I actually don't have a strong opinion one way or the other because I've really never looked into it. Right. 
And uh, next question. For athletes that have a limited time to train, let's say four to eight hours per week, what general advice can you give for them? Uh, I would say manage fatigue would be the first big one. Um, cause if you have a limited amount of time to train, you probably have a lot of stress and a lot of other stuff going on in your life and managing that fatigue is going to be the key to improvements. Um, so making sure that when you get on the bike, it's a good high quality session and you can hit it with the RPE that you want. Like if you do two by 15 at FTP and you're really digging for those Watts, it's, re- it's really not worth it. You really should have just taken an easy spin. Um, so, um, yeah, I, yeah. And take it easy when necessary, I think, um, because I think a lot of folks think that, um, well, this actually goes on with fatigue management. Uh, so yeah, easy rides, especially if you're tired from the day or if you think like, oh man, I missed, I missed a meal or something like that. Yeah. Then you want to take it easy. You really don't want to overdo it. You don't want your training to be adding stress to your life, uh, just to get it done. I think. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, even if you're time limited, um, you know, even if you're on like six, like five to eight hours a week of training or something like that, and you're having a hard time managing this kind of stuff, get a coach or get a plan that's made for this kind of stuff. Um, you know, having an extra set of eyes, I think, uh, really, really helps for sure. And, uh, in theory, uh, if you have an athlete that can manage the fatigue and, uh, but they are limited to a to a limit to four to eight hours, five to eight hours of training. Do you think that they, relatively speaking, should be doing more more intensity uh, than somebody who has more time to train? Uh, I would say this is again going to go along with the fatigue management type uh, type thing because if you cannot manage the intensity, like if it's especially the the harder that you train um, intensity wise the higher quality that you want those sessions to be, especially once you get up into like anaerobic and sprint type training, you want really want to be able to really dig deep with that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, otherwise I would say, um, yeah, it's, it's the same answer. Just, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I have nothing more to add. Okay. Really, okay. No, that's fair. <laughs> and, uh, finally, before we get into the rapid fire questions for self-coach athletes in general, uh, whether they are, time restricted or not uh, that want to become better at managing their own training improving the effectiveness of their training can you suggest three things that they should do in this regard so things that they can maybe look to individualize more in their training and uh, yeah things to perhaps track and change in training based on that Uh, any tips that you have here for the self-coach athlete yeah sure i would actually say um try to have as many quantifiable metrics as possible with anything that you know you have trouble with. I think one of the biggest things that uh, self-coached athletes struggle with is managing fatigue. Um, Cause I think a lot of people, um, I think I said this on a recent podcast. Um, I think a lot of people have a fatigue security blanket around them. Um, their legs are always this tired and they like them feeling that tired. It means they're working hard. Um, but if you were coaching somebody else and they were telling you all the things that you were feeling yourself, you would tell them to rest like nine times out of 10. Um, so having an objective way to coach yourself, um, 
you know, whether it's, uh, I usually don't recommend this, but if you are, if you're really having trouble, uh, you know, a, a questionnaire for yourself, uh, fill it out every day, fill in the training peaks metrics or, you know, the fatigue, the general feeling kind of stuff. Um, you know, uh, I usually don't recommend this, but, um, you know, like a Fitbit sleep tracker or like a whoop strap, if, you know, if, if HRV finding tracking that works for you, then use that. Um, and, um, yeah, I would also say, uh, the thing that most people who are self-coached should do is entertain a mindset of doubt. I think personally, this is one of the biggest things I ever did to improve my coaching was instead of thinking, I know everything I had to start thinking, I know nothing. And that really forced me to question my methods. And I'm always trying to prune out what's extraneous, um, or, you know, get it, get a better working relationship with an athlete or something like that. So, um, so having that self doubt, that self critical type thing is really crucial. Like, um, like take the Wasson selection test, <laughs> try that, try that one and see if you can get it on the first try without knowing the answer ahead of time. Um, but basically the takeaway is you don't just try to prove yourself right. Also try to prove yourself wrong. Um, so I think in, in self-coaching and in just coaching in general, uh, that is a really good mindset to have. Um, I would also say the last thing is focus on the basics. There's no silver bullets. Um, you know, whatever, you know, compression pants you have or ice bath protocol that you have, like these are not the things that are going to make people improve or yourself improve in the long term. It's really, um, just showing up every day, making sure the fatigue doesn't get out of hand and having a steady progression all the time. Uh, that's really what, what it comes down to. Um, like, uh, one of my, one of my favorite quotes from, uh, Mike Isratel, uh, who is the Renaissance periodization guy. Uh, he said, you want to know how to get strong, uh, lift weights three to five times a week for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's your silver bullet. <laughs> yeah. That's a silver bullet. <laughs> All right. No, I, those are all really great tips. Uh, I think that the second one there with uh, with entertaining uh, a mindset of, of self-doubt there is good, but it's also a double-edged sword. So I just want to, to add something to that. And I think that you also should, you also need that consistency and you you shouldn't jump from one thing to the next. So So you need to have a combination of both, like trying to constantly improve what you're doing, but without having so much second guessing of yourself that you're never doing anything consistently before you can even measure the results of it. So, so that's a bit of a balancing act. No, I a hundred percent agree with you. And maybe I take it for granted because I'm uh, I, I was trained as a scientist. So, uh, and I, I think you're a, you're a scientist too, right? You're an engineer. I'm an engineer. Or, or yeah. Is, yeah. So, so you and I have the same mindset of let's, let's feed a thing into this black box of an athlete and see what comes out the other side. Um, and trying to figure out why it comes out like that, you know, that's, uh, that's probably something that's on both of our minds a lot and that, and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, you definitely don't want to, um, be too scattershot, uh, in your training approach. You want to see, give, give a training intervention, a good chance to see if it works, uh, or not. And whether or not it, uh, physiologically works for the reasons you think it does, um, you know, it doesn't matter until you try to expand on that training philosophy too much, in which case, like, um, like if you have a training philosophy built on X does Y and therefore Z, but if you, if you expand on that and you think, all right, now I'm really gonna 
go like, you know, put all my chips on. This is why this training intervention works. And it actually does not work like that. Um, I, I heard this phrase, I forget where, but it's, uh, I would call that metaphorically true, literally false. So if, if a thing works and you think it works, that's great, but you don't want to, you don't want to extrapolate from that too much without really understanding the hows and the whys. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a great, great phrase and a great understanding to come to uh, when when it comes to planning your training, but uh, planning a lot of things or um, decision making in general. So yeah, really, I really like that. Now let's uh, move on to the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog or resource related to endurance sports? Um. I'm actually going to take two sentences. I'm sorry. But <laughs> first, first, I like I like your podcast the most out of all podcasts because um, you don't try to overinterpret anything. You're you're really really good. Um, uh, I would say PubMed, Google Scholar, and SciHub, and especially in those resources, looking up old papers. Um, a lot of questions have actually been answered between the 60s and the 80s that we have now that we're relooking into. So, yeah. All right. And thanks a lot for that. I appreciate it. Sure. <laughs> Second one is, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? Oh, self-doubt, for sure. Perfect. <laughs> you know, always always thinking that you're on the bottom of the Dunning-Kruger curve. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's somebody that, anybody who doesn't know what that is, uh, Google it. It's uh, very insightful. <laughs> and uh, finally, who's somebody uh, in endurance sports that you look up to or that has inspired you? Uh, man, I... <laughs> <laughs> uh i'm actually gonna throw a curveball here uh iggy pop he's he's not an endurance athlete obviously but um but i i grew up uh i was a musician you know for first you know 15 to 25 27 years old and uh you know that iggy pop and that early punk rock mentality of like i'm just gonna go for this and i hope it works kind of mentality that do-it-yourself kind of mentality really really helps me and uh and you know informs my um training decisions uh, to this day that's great and actually i, I always like it when when guests go a little bit outside the bounds of the question and uh yeah think outside the box so the, the rules are there <laughs> to be broken so yeah great answer uh, finally where can people find you on the internet or on the social media and uh, mention your podcast again for those that didn't catch it oh sure um you can go to my website, empiricalcycling.com. Uh, I have all of the uh, podcasts up there. Um, you can also find the podcasts on uh, iTunes and Stitcher and I believe Spotify. Um, and uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at Empirical Cycling. And uh, my podcast co-host, Kyle K. Helson10. Uh, you can find his cat Instagrams. Uh, he has two cats. Um <laughs> And uh, they're really wonderful. So uh, check out Kyle and his cats also. That's awesome. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Coley, for uh, this chat. It's been really great and uh, I really enjoyed it. So, and I hope the listeners did too. uh, Talk to you again soon, I hope. Thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, it's really, uh, really an honor to be invited onto your podcast that I've, uh, I've been listening to for quite some time. I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Coach Coley. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com and we'll have plenty of links to Coley's website and uh, social media. 
Also, be sure to check out his podcast, the Empirical Cycling Podcast. And I have links as well to a few articles that he's written on Training Peaks. And one that we referred to uh, a couple of times during this episode was the one called The Physiology of FTP and New Testing Protocols, which is well worth a read. So check that out. Also, just a reminder, on the podcast page on scientifictriathlon.com, you can now filter the, the episodes, the interviews by category. So this one, for example, would go in the cycling category. And you can just click that, uh, click the tab that says cycling and you will get all episodes that are related to cycling or categorized as cycling. And that will be a great way for you to find all the related episodes on episodes such as this, where we have, frankly, a lot of related episodes because, because of them talking about cycling training in one way or another. On Thursday, we have another Q&A episode coming out. And next Monday, I interview an interesting guest on an interesting topic. Uh, sorry for the vagueness there and uh, the cliffhanger, but by the time of this recording, I haven't yet decided which interview to schedule for next week. So do subscribe to the podcast and you'll get the episode automatically as it's released and you'll find out then. If you're looking for training plans or coaching services, go and check out scientifictriathlon.com and what we have to offer there. Uh, we really think and hope that we can help you take the next level as an athlete, uh, whatever that next level is for you. And also depending on things like what your commitment and budget level is. So that's why we have the different options from uh, full individual coaching to the ready-made training plans. Big thanks finally to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy and get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlons.